everybody thank you for joining me on another episode of the spicy pecan podcast singing with me now hey no i'm just kidding guys thank you so much for the support yo we're really out here i'm on episode 11 already i am so psyched all the support i've been meeting some of the most dope people and i gotta tell you guys i don't know i don't know how much people are awoke i know the people who listen to the show who actually comment and send me messages um, seem pretty woke, seem pretty with it on what's happening. But all across the country, guys, there are these amazing initiatives happening in uh, in black and brown communities, in all communities, uh, unified, just so many stories I've been finding. So first of all, I want to thank you guys for 11 episodes and supporting me the whole way through. Secondly, I want to thank everybody who has responded to my interview requests, my research requests, have spoken to me on different topics, educated me on different topics. Bless you. Bless you. This is what this show is all about. I want to bring things to people's awareness that they might not have even thought about and also learn along the way and grow along the way. So that's definitely been happening. I'm super blessed. I'm in such a good situation um, with this show. So anyway, let's get into some current events. I haven't spoken to you guys in two weeks. So a couple of things going on in the news and in the world. The first thing that I want to talk about, we have spoken about on this show before, but uh, not really in this way. So recently there have been a spike in suicides. A lot of people experiencing depression, a lot of people experiencing anxiety. And let's be clear, I'm not talking about the suicides that they want you to think are suicides, but are actually not suicides. I'm talking about actual spike in suicides due to mental health issues. I have absolutely been there. I have absolutely been there. I don't know where you are on your mental health journey, but um, as you guys know, I've suffered from alcoholism. I say all my life because I never really had a good relationship with alcohol and it led me down to some really, you know, the the typical saying, led me down the wrong path. That shit is totally true. That shit led me down some crazy paths and a lot of those paths led to deep, deep depression because of shame in mistakes and just repeating the same old thought systems and you just beat yourself up over and over again. We can be our own worst enemy. What I would like to say to you is that if you are experiencing severe depression, if you're in that dark space, please talk to somebody. Please talk to someone. You need people. 
as much as we think that we don't, as much as we don't want to rely on people, as much as we try so hard to build ourselves into these strong pillars that can, you know, hold it down for ourselves and hold it down for our family and all of that, we're human. We are sacks of meat (laughs) with feelings and we're all sensitive yeah, we got guys that walk around and they puff out their chest and they do, it's, we're all sensitive. We're all sensitive. So I I beg of you, please talk to someone, even if it's a stranger. Even if it's a stranger, sometimes that's what you need. There are, if you Google suicide prevention lines, there are resources everywhere. If you know someone who has dealt with this issue before, Check on them now because as much as some of us are getting back to regular, getting back to normal, a lot of us aren't and a lot of us don't realize how much trauma we're really experiencing with all of the stuff that's happening. Yeah, we're waking up, we're getting dressed. Some of us are going to work. Some of us are working from home. Some of us have started to create our routines and things like that. But trust and believe, trust and believe that We're still in the middle of a very crazy situation and it's okay. It is okay to feel confused and have moments of waves of anxiety. It's happened to me. It's happened to me recently and I'm in a great place. So what I, what I ask of everyone is just, I don't want to be too long winded with this, but this really does need some time. Um, Please do that. Check on the people that you care about. Even people who are always strong, especially the ones who are always strong. The ones who are always crying, that's not the ones you always have to worry about. They're going to tell you when they're in pain. The people like me, because I, trust me, I mean, there were times where it got very dark. Um, If you... If it's someone like me, someone who is proud, someone who is going to try to handle the situation on their own, reach out to them and just let them know that, yo, you ain't got to be cute. You ain't got to be funny. You ain't got to be perfect for me ever. So I just wanted to mention that because I know in the news there was a report that Tamar Braxton, who I love, even though she got a big mouth. I love the fact that she got a big ass mouth, um, possibly tried to commit suicide and, um, disgustingly they released the 911 tape of her boyfriend I don't know how they're legally allowed to do that but that shit was foul anyway um just heartbreaking heartbreaking we do need each other so you know be there for your people make sure you are don't be one of those people that you know regrets you can't change what someone else is gonna do but you know you can definitely do your part in just reminding someone that there ain't no shame in coming over here to just talk about it And there's nothing that's ever going to be bad enough that you need to take yourself out. If it's that bad, the most high is going to take you out. Okay. And when it's your time, he's going to handle that for you. So, you know, everyone in my prayers, um, you know, stay blessed up guys. I was going to talk about, uh, moving on. Uh, I was going to talk about Kanye West, but I can't even stomach it. Um, moving right along. COVID numbers. So where are we? Our progress report, um, shitty, failing, uh, left behind. Um, uh, we're doing terrible. We look like international fools. Um, we are 
it's absolutely ridiculous. On the 28th, which was yesterday, um, we had over 1,100 new deaths. 1,100 new deaths. Deaths, people dying. So 1,100 new deaths means how many families are affected, right? The pebble in the, in the pond, how many families and neighborhoods are affected? How many workplaces and it's just, this whole thing is, is a freaking nightmare. Um, the only reason I'm mentioning this one or why it's on my little note sheet here is just to remind you guys again, um, COVID's real, it's still out there and it's killing people. In other news, rich people are still fighting about how little they can give everybody else. The Senate is deciding whether they are going to continue with the $600, um, uh, that additional aid that they were giving the $600 a week. They want to drop it down to 200. This idea that these people who don't have jobs that are, they're actually sweating, you know, they don't have jobs where they have to take two buses and they don't have jobs where they have to worry about all these different things, right? They have cushy little jobs that they can sit at home and work from home or the idea that these people who have no idea what it's like to actually have a regular job dictate what people get is they're going to keep selling y'all this idea that it's a handout. They're going to keep selling you this idea that it is a handout and it is not a handout. It is my money. We keep the economy running. People, not the selected few, not the elected few, the people. We keep this hoe running. So where is the respect? Why are people pissed off by the fact that there's no respect? This isn't going to affect me like it's going to affect people with kids and, you know, who have different situations than me. But it boils my blood, this idea that they're trying to sell you that this is some type of handout and to give you just enough so that you have to make a choice between life and death and feeding your family so that they can keep you in poverty just enough so that you'll still get up and go do the whatever job. No consideration. It's... I can go on and on and on about this. And if you've been listening to my show, I absolutely have. But we're going to move along on that one. Uh, The Supreme Court is, (laughs) this was actually pretty funny. The Supreme Court was uh, ruling, uh, working on a case, ruling on a case, uh, you know, in regards to the LGBTQI community um, in discrimination. So, uh, does discrimination, uh, protect you based on your sexuality and your gender, you know, the way that you present your gender. So, uh, (laughs) they were going to leave transgenders out of this. They were going to say, yes, all of you bisexual, gay, yes, we're going to, you know, under the law, you were protected. So if you're in a workplace and somebody tries to fire you on the basis that you're gay, on the basis that you're bisexual, on the basis that you're a lesbian, that's wrong. You can sue them. We're going to get you justice. Transgenders. And it's so, it's such a shame because regardless of how you feel about the choices that people make, 
I am a firm believer that we must come to a point where there is a baseline of respect just based on the fact that you are a goddamn human. Just based on the fact that you are a child of God. We got all these religious people, people always talking about, oh, I'm a Christian. Oh, I'm this. Oh, I'm that. Act like it. Act like it in the way that you vote, in the way that you treat people, in the... (laughs) It's like... We can't even get to a point where we're going to treat people with a baseline of respect because they're human. We can't even get to that point. It's man, this we're in the matrix, y'all. We're in the matrix. And the more, you know, the more you get frustrated by it. But the bill uh, or the it was a court case um, in favor of the transgenders were actually added in the end. But it's very interesting how these things are all handled in a room somewhere with people who just are so off touch with what most people believe. Most people, I feel, don't give two shits. They have too many other things going on in their real lives that they don't care. Look, treat them, I don't care, treat them the same way you would treat whoever. That's it. Anyway, that, um, I thought that was pretty crazy. The last thing I wanted to mention was this, um, these statues. I know a lot of people are getting very excited about these statues being removed and, you know, there's Black Lives Matter Avenue and Boulevard and you got Black Lives Matter on the street and the statues, the street signs, these little tokens, it's like bringing a bag of ice to a house that's on fire. We need policy change, okay? We need the needle to actually be moved. Gestures are not going to get there. Are they appreciated? Absolutely. Yes, I would like you to correct all the shitty things and all the, the terrible marketing you've done and the, you know, the different statues you put up and yeah, absolutely right. your wrongs. You don't need me to tell you to do that. Sure. Get rid of all this crap, but what's actually changing? <laughs> what is changing as far as law policy? Okay. So you can't chokehold anyone. Thank you. Thank you for not being able to chokehold someone who is, Don't be fooled by small tokens as a symbol of something actually being moved or changed or done, okay? It, these things are not going to be felt the way that actual policy change will be felt. So I just wanted to say that because I was watching something and Uh, a couple of younger kids, they were, you know, so hype about these statues and I get it. I get it. Yes. Nobody wants these racist people to be memorialized. And if they are do it in an appropriate way, that doesn't need to be in the middle of a beautiful park looming over everyone. Some racist person who doesn't even on paper represent America the way that it should. But, um, but we'll stay tuned because change is coming. I know it's coming and I know you guys know it too. So let's hop into the topic. We have um, some really, really cool guests today. We have Kelly McGuffey. Kelly started a Facebook group 
called the Black Survival, or I'm sorry, the Black Homesteaders and Survivalist Group on Facebook. Super empowering group, a um, lot of networking opportunities, a lot of education. Everyone is there to, um, you know, share what they know and network with each other. So I found that to be really, really helpful. And Kelly started the group recently has gotten into activism, um, but has kind of always been, you know, kind of doing things here or there. Super dope personality. She, Kelly is a spicy pecan, okay? So y'all gonna love her. And then we also have April Jones. April, um, and this is why I love this show, because we get a chance to talk to people who see a situation and, you know, figure out creative solutions. That's what this is about. That's what makes us human, you know? So um, anyway, <laughs> she started a farmer's market because there was a need in her community when two grocery stores um, had shut down. And we're actually seeing food deserts and, um, you know, grocery stores shutting down across the country. So it's creating these pockets where people are having to travel further, do more to get um, basic nutrition that, you know, is really important. So this episode, I wanted to take a little time to talk about and just introduce your mind to homesteading, farming, gardening, group economics. The two ladies are going to talk about their journey Um, both of them are, uh, Kelly is working her way toward being a hundred percent self-sustained. Um, and April is, um, you know, she, she obviously farms and she has the farmer's market and, you know, she's doing things within that world as well. So in my research, I have, obviously, we all know about food insecurity. We know that there are areas in this country where there are food deserts. If you've been listening to this show, you definitely know I'm from Camden, New Jersey. Camden, New Jersey is one of those places. It's an urban area, um, a place that's been ravaged by crime and, and drugs and things like that, and basically been disenfranchised in from the state and federal government. It's one of those cities that you drive into and it looks like you may be in another country. Um, One of those cities that basically politicians have turned their backs on and said that these residents don't matter. We have a a city right next to the city. The population looks a little different. Um, Different races make up the population, but the city is just as poor and it's, it's night and day. So I say that to say, All across the country, people are realizing that it is time to begin to disengage from the system to a certain point. What do I mean by that? So your grandma, your great grandma, right? They had gardens. They had gardens. They were eating the lettuce, the cabbage, the collard greens from the garden. They were making remedies with their thyme and mint and, you know, all kinds of little things that they had going on. Everything was more geared towards natural, what I can see, what I know. If it's in a can and there's a whole bunch of stuff in there I can't even pronounce, it might not be the best thing for me. And we're realizing that there are pockets of our population who are not forced, but circumstances just make it harder to have access to the best nutrition. And the craziest part about it is the best nutrition is shit that's free. You know, you plant some seeds in the ground and it grows real food. Um, and I wanted to introduce this idea of group economics to you. So think about this. 
Think about you have 10, 10 houses on a block, right? House number one, that's the garden lady. She does all the cabbage, the collard greens, the tomatoes, the potatoes, pumpkins, all that stuff. Her garden is lit. She has it all. So everybody, all those 10 houses, everybody on the block, they get all their produce from her. Then the person next door, well, that guy, he does a lot of landscaping. You know, he mows the lawn, does little handyman jobs, all that stuff. Well, all those 10 houses, they all go to him when they need something to get fixed. And then the third house, the girl does hair. So she braids hair, she cuts hair, she does it all, you know? So all the 10 houses go to her to get their haircut. So this is what group economics is. And what we're learning is that we are seeing people like Soul Fire Kitchen is one of them. And the ladies that we're going to talk to today um, are some of them. People are getting back to the basics. People are taking matters into their own hands and creating situations where they can win. So let me just put some um, statistics behind this, right? So we know that there's a food insecurity issue. The International Panel of Experts on Sustainable Systems, this was April 14th, so this was like no time ago. Um, They made a big statement. Uh, They said, children have been one school meal away from hunger and families just one missed day wage away from food insecurity. Okay, and obviously people in marginalized areas are always going to suffer more. They suffer more with everything, Um, but especially when it comes to food. So to put this in a different context, in 1920, right, there were about a million black farmers and they managed or worked 41.4 million acres of land. Okay. So 14% of farm owners were black in 1920. All right, this is an article from Mother Jones. Today, 1.4 are black farmers. And remember how they had 41.4 million acres of land? Now it's 4.7 million acres of land. Now it would take me all day, it, it's, a, it's an actual class for me to go into how that came to be and, you know, different, just understand this laws and policies and just damn near theft really have gotten us to this point. Why am I bringing these topics up? African-Americans have made extraordinary contributions to the farming industry. Okay. Um, and again, this that could be a class in teaching um, different agriculture techniques and just our history within that industry. But the crazy thing about it is that nowadays, when you talk to, you know, just everyday black and brown people, it's almost looked down on farming. It's almost looked at as, ugh. Living in the city is more of, a, you know, a desirable thing, but... Mama, the city never loved you. The city never loved you. The city packed you into the projects. The city packed you into buildings with, you know, 27 floors and no working elevator and, you know, drugs and no monitoring and all that. The city's never loved you, baby. The cities have never loved you. You can't buy a house. You can't afford the house. And then let's say if somebody in your family maybe did buy a house, 
you might pop up, look up 10 years later and everybody in your neighborhood, nobody looked like you. And now you can't afford the taxes. You know what I mean? So getting back to the point, the basics, group economics, thinking about the way in which we're handling some of these issues. Like for example, look at everybody's always talking about crime and homelessness and all of that. We have community gardens. Why aren't we offering employment opportunities to people who are homeless to grow food, sell the produce in their neighborhoods, actually be able to have some dignity with their lives, being able to work with their hands and being able to accomplish something? Why aren't we looking at things innovatively like that? Imagine if, you know, a hundred homeless people from your nearest city were the people who were in charge of the community gardens in that city that were giving free boxes of produce to pregnant women and charging, you know, everybody else fair rates for produce. That sounds like a self-sustained business. But, and obviously I didn't get this idea on my own. Like I said, all across the country, people are figuring out ways to be incredibly innovative with these things. But I want you to think about it in your life too. It doesn't even matter if you're, you don't have to be poor. You don't have to be poor. Can you save a little money by starting a little garden? Are you a, you know, a tomato fanatic and you spend a certain amount of tomatoes? Can you start growing some tomatoes in your backyard and then giving them away to some of your neighbors or selling them to some of your neighbors? It's just a thought. But I wanted to bring this to you guys' attention um, just because I think that in the world that we live in, we have gotten so far away from where we need to be. We have lived a lot longer on homesteads and farms and things like that than we have the way that we live today. And if you're putting two and two together, it's not really leading us down the path that I think that we want to continue to go. We're destroying the planet. We're polluting our bodies with terrible food. We're getting hit with a pandemic and now it's making us face some of the things that we've been eating and the choices and the areas that we've been living in. You know, remember when I said that city didn't give you no love? They packed you into the most polluted part of the city. So anyway, um, all this stuff is super fascinating to me. Uh, But I did just want to put those little tidbits in your ear before we get into the interview so I could just set a little bit of groundwork for the ladies in, um, you know, as they're explaining their journeys with us. So without further ado, we're going to slide into the interview with Kelly. This is uh, Kelly McGuffey of the Black Homesteaders and Survivalist Group on Facebook. All right, Kelly, thank you so much for joining the show. We are so lucky to have you. Thank you for having me. I wanted to, you know, let the audience know who you are. Uh, Give us a little idea of, you know, your background, um, what era you grew up in and that type of thing. Right, right. Well, I'm a bicentennial baby. I'm literally just as old as hip hop. I was born in um, Muncie, Indiana, and uh, that's where I started out and attended school. And um, I'm a product of the public school system. Big shout out to public schools. They do work or did at one point in time. And um, let's see, now I'm a mom and an activist here in um, 
Springfield, Tennessee, and I focus a lot on, you know, uh, food rights and the racism in the food system. I focus a lot on the education system, especially now with COVID. Um, basically, uh, I'm an I'm a new a newbie to this activism thing because now I am free to kind of be who I want and say what I want. Right. You don't get doxxed <laughs> when you're a stay-at-home mom, or it's awful hard. You're gonna have to call my husband and complain. Yeah. Who's gonna fire me, boo? Right, who's gonna fire me, boo? He ain't, you right? So it's really rough on these folks around here. <laughs> but yeah, that's what I've been doing. I mean, um, like I said, a year ago I was just kind of chilling, doing my little gardening and plant stuff, but I feel like in this moment, we are all compelled to contribute a verse or a page to this story in our history right now. Mm. And to not do so would be remiss, is how I feel. So it has led me on this. So I guess I'm a baby activist (laughs) in my infancy of being the really, really militant kind of person and saying the things that really need to get said now. Absolutely. And we need those voices. Um, We need those voices in every corner because a lot of people are still, unfortunately, asleep. Yeah. Especially Uh, in rural areas. See, when we live in these city centers, we get very accustomed to living a very diverse and unified life. We get along very well, but then there are people and we don't even think, and I never thought, what about these people in rural America? Because it's not that there there aren't min- minorities represented here. They've just been steamrolled. And I don't know when the steamrolling started, but the black community here is silent, just about silent. And so is the Hispanic community. They do not speak up against this red, big red machine that runs this county. And so there are a lot of people I realized in that moment, there are a lot of people that are still hanging in this sharecropper type limbo right out in rural America. And we didn't even realize it because we were too busy trying to get to Wakanda. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. If you live like I was, um, I lived in Huntsville, Alabama for, for a lot of my adult life and raised my children there, began raising my children there. And of course, that place is just loaded down with HBCUs. We had Alabama A&M across the street. We had Oakwood. We had, you know, Alabama State. We had just all of these rich cultural experiences to just dive into. And now here we are. We are so thirsty. Like, there's not even a Martin Luther King Day program here. Right. It's the park that is uh, named after Martin Luther King, literally has no playground equipment in it. Right. No trees, no nothing. Just a sign that says you have to call to reserve the track and that'll cost you money. I was raised by a single parent. Yeah. And I remember because my mom was a very young parent. So um, we kind of grew up together. Yeah. Um, and just in seeing her struggle in raising my brother and I, um, I'm just kind of reminded of that now with the issues that we're facing, single parents, and combining that with some empowering things like the things that you're doing, canning and growing food and just looking at the way in which we're living a bit differently. Um, can you just kind of, you know, describe um, your struggles in, in being a single parent, were you incorporating some of these or, you know, what challenges did you face 
in terms of being able to provide for your children food and, you know, staples? Well, as a single parent, um, we all have to weigh it up on the scale. You can either have a career and be very successful in it, or you can have some kids and be successful at that. There's really no, one loses out. Right. There's just, you know, one is going to suffer if you focus on the other because you're only one person. Um, like I said, I made an active decision to participate in the system as much as I could, but still remain free enough to be with my kids. Like, for example, when I had my second child, I opted um, to stay home. Now, when I had my first child, I stayed with my my parent, my dad, and um, I was able to raise her until she was about four years old when she could go into free school. She could talk, she could walk. Um, so I kept her home and there was really no big deal about it. My dad was not having an issue. But then when it came to the second child, my decision was to do the same. I would not send her to daycare. I enrolled in school full time. And I went into the system. I used the food stamps that I had been paying in for since I was 14. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is it an entitlement? Yeah, I've been paying taxes this whole time. And then after the fact, I'll pay some more. Right. So I, I didn't hesitate to lean in on that. But using those resources that you're given and making decisions about even if you don't have the time to garden, even if you don't have the time to grow or can make good choices about your kids food right now right even if you had to walk into the grocery store and spend a little more for organic food or you have to set aside a day where you meal prep so that your you know your kids are getting nutritious food that's a commitment you have to make you committed to having children right and and nutrition i mean it goes along with everything else but this research shows that good nutrition is the center stone for a child's success in life. Like we can't focus if we haven't had breakfast. We can't learn, we can't, we can't get there, you know, if we're hungry. Right. So making sure that you, um, like I said, you're not trying to feed them a bunch of stuff they can make on their own. And it's hard, like I said, to not get hot dogs and ramen and and all of those easy things that would be simple for them. But it, and it's a commitment to get up on a Sunday morning and make your oatmeal for the week. You know, it's, yeah, it's a lot. If we were reimagining things, um, if it is, it's essentially low cost to free to grow something. Yes. So if you have some type of outdoor area, um, a balcony, a patio, uh, a, you know, you know, somebody with a backyard. Um, I want to kind of encourage people to start thinking creatively yeah, and how they can accomplish certain things. Right. Um, you know, is there an opportunity to partner with someone, like I said, that has a backyard to be able to grow right. um, some foods? Because even with the assistance, it's not always enough. The no. things that are greenlit or on the list of things that you can get are not always the best. Right. You know? Right. And then also the line, be, you have to be so far be, um, like below or you have to be so um, close to the poverty line to even qualify for it, even if you're struggling. 
right you're struggling right um that someone with a decent not even a great paying job but Girl. a decent paying job so it's a, it's a bunch of different things that are set up to um make it more difficult for people to have fresh vegetables something very simple right. fresh vegetables fresh food right um, and that type of thing what are your thoughts on on how can we kind of well, overcome some of this as an as a woman of a certain age it i feel it is my prerogative to look for young women who are interested in finding a new way um trying to teach them how to innovate and be outside of the box thinkers you know growing containers grow you know i I look at our housing projects and in between all of the buildings are fields of open, sunny grass. Why is that there? Why, why can't it be a garden right. for the community? Um, I'm actually going to partner with a, a local farm here. I've already talked to the owner about it. And uh, next year, she and I are going to give away free food plants. Plants, not free food. This is right. not a handout. This is a hand up. Right. And not only will we do that, but I'm also getting ready to approach our housing authority because, like I said, I noticed yesterday there's just fields of grass that could be turned into field where these people could have a common shared goal and get some and get a real reward out of it. Right. Not only from the food, but from the labor and the learning. Like I said, you teach a man to fish, he can feed himself for life. Right. Every moment that you can feed yourself with your own hands, you know, I, I am, um, I'm a big Amish shopper. I go to the Amish right. store because I really feel like that's what the turn of the century mercantile or my grandmother would have shopped at a store like that. And they don't sell Campbell soup. They don't sell popsicles. They don't sell all the stuff that we drain our pockets with in the Kroger. Right. They sell sugar, flour, butter, eggs, milk, meat. You know, these are simple, simplified items. So if you focus yourself on, like I said, and things like bread making and baking and stuff, that's all lost to us too, because we've had to work. We've been right. forced to, into this work is the way scenario, which the corporations absolutely love, but it's absolutely killing us out here. And also if anything happens, which this does happen in communities, grocery stores close. Yeah. If the local grocery store closes in your neighborhood, what are you going to do? You're and also in the hood in urban areas, there aren't real grocery stores no. and the grocery stores that are they they're predatory. The prices mm -hmm. are crazy expensive. There's no value. They know that you don't have a car. Yeah. They know that they're the only option. The mm -hmm. corner store, the reason their cereal is $7 a box is because right. they know you have no option. So what happens to the poorest of us, we end up spending more of our money to get regular items. Yes. And it's just this constant, constant drain, drain on your resources, drain on the resources that the government has presented you with. If you have $400 a month to feed your family and you're buying a $7 box of cereal every week, that's rough. Right. And if you know, like I know, and you got two kids, a, two, a one box of cereal ain't gonna cut it, sis. Right. That's going down the first day. <laughs> right. Yeah. It, right. You know, because it's, it's, it's valueless food. It's all this, all these breakfast cereals, they are valueless, negative food. You know, you might as well pick up a piece of dirt and eat it. 
I mean, you no. get more nutrients. It's, it's, I call them food hookers. They're always standing out in front of the grocery store, waiting <laughs> to walk by and pick them up. The Rice Krispie treats and the juices and the Gatorades and all these things that are laced with sugar, dye, and preservatives. Like I said, we need to rethink the whole system, and and that requires a an awakening, right? So to speak, you cannot be on autopilot in this moment. Um, we must stay on. We must stay alert. Because as the system has programmed us to keep our heads down and not look, there are some very non-systematic things happening right now as far as the federal agents being released into your community dressed in fatigues right. and snatching people off the street, um, the schools getting ready to go back into session knowing we're in a pandemic. These things can really threaten that system to its core. Right. And when the system is threatened, the poorest and the weakest among us will pay and suffer. So pay attention. That's that if I had a sign to put up today, it would be pay attention. Watch your surroundings. And also join uh, what's the what's the full title of the group on Facebook? The, my Facebook group is Black Homesteaders and Survivalists, BHS. Um, we're real easy to find. Um, it is really a platform I created so that people of color could synergize and unite their skills and what they have to offer, provide links to their businesses. Um, and I think that we're, um, we're pretty stringent about who we let in. Um, we are a, a safe space for people of color um, only at this point in time. And we may find later on that we create another group but um, spaces yeah. where and that we doesn't can... mean that everybody can't support events and initiatives. Right. It just means that the actual organizing is done by black yeah. and brown people because they are the representation, you know. Right. And one more question, even though I said the last one was the last one. That's okay. If you could take a paintbrush and reimagine black communities, what would it look like? We would have a lot more um fellowship on a professional level not just on a spiritual level but a professional level we'd like to come together on sunday but we that but then we abandon you know those of us who have have kind of excelled and come up and have been successful we abandon those folks till next sunday you know we go back to our suburbs they go back to their apartment and we leave those people behind if I had uh, my wish, we would all reach back. We would all stick a hand back. Once you have climbed that stair, you need to reach back and pull somebody up with you. Right. And you need to, and we need to protect each other at all costs. Doesn't matter that we don't all 100% agree on everything within our community. Right. But we respect our community enough to uphold it. And I think that, um, like I said, there's so many ideas about what is a successful black community. Um, I think that definition kind of stops a lot of people. You know, they think because they're in the suburbs or they're in the projects that they're not of one community, but they absolutely are as soon as the police get behind them. Like I said, find those with the initiative that want to apply themselves to be self-reliant and help those attitudes and ideas flourish in our community. That's the saying. So, like I said, in closing, that's what 
Black Homesteaders and Survivalists is all about. Um, like I said, bringing these like-minded people into one location so we can work together to um, make some real change, like you said, in this community, in our, in not only your local community, but the global community, the, the country's community. You know, this can have lasting impact if we work at it. Right. But we've got to commit. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you, Kelly. I'll holler at you later, girly. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. So the second interview, you guys, got a little chopped up. It was mostly on my end, so I salvaged as much of the interview as I could. Um, and some of my questions you'll be able to hear, but other ones I'm going to plug in. So... My very first question of asking or in speaking with Kelly was to just give us a background of her, um, you know, how she grew up, the era that she grew up in, the area, that type of thing. Sure. So I'm originally from Akron, Ohio, and I grew up in the 80s, which was uh, a great time to grow up. I had such a, um, had a really good childhood and it was very Akron was just a very stable, staid kind of place to grow up. Everything was the same. Um, it was just a really great place. And so um, that was my start and my journey. I moved to South Carolina um, about 15 years ago, and I've been here ever since. Awesome. So I know that just on our previous conversations, I know you, you own about 2.5 acres of land or two acres of land. Yeah, so I have 2.5 acres of land in the Pinehurst neighborhood, which is a neighborhood in downtown Columbia. Uh, it's right off of the Two Notch Business Corridor, right near um, Benedict Stadium, the football stadium. Um, and so, yeah, I love it here. There's lots of land. I live next door to my mother, um, and we're kind of just on one big track. So it's really nice. I have a son. He's able to, you know, enjoy the front yard, backyard, because it's totally fenced in. So yeah, I've been gardening and working on landscaping the front yard. So it's just really been a, a labor of love during COVID, but I've had so much time to do it. So it's been a great timing for sure. Why is now a good time for people to educate themselves on farming, homesteading, self-sustainable living? So I am a big proponent of Leah Penniman in New York. She has Soul Fire Farm. And she has some of the great quotes about food sovereignty, food equity, um, and just along those lines. And so she says, to free yourself, you have to feed yourself. And I think that that's what we're finding out in COVID. Like, freedom isn't being able to go out and get your own food that you've grown, that you know exactly um, what you've been doing to it. You know, you know, if you want to go organic, you know, you've been using great organic practices. Um, and you know, the health of your soil, uh, you know, what water, what type of water you've been putting on um, your produce, you know, if you're growing out animals, you know, what feed you've been giving your animals, you know, what kind of lifestyle they've had. Um, and so it's just, there's freedom in that. There's freedom in knowing exactly where your food is coming from and there's freedom and knowing that you're feeding your family the best food that you possibly can. So I think it's so important, especially in COVID. We're seeing across the country grocery stores closing and this has been a trend, you know, when the grocery stores close, it creates uh, a huge desert in that area. Um, you didn't just sit down and allow that to happen and just take the longer drive. 
Absolutely. So we're in the Pinehurst neighborhood and it's a predominantly African-American working class neighborhood. We have quite a few seniors in our neighborhood. It's very small. It only is about five blocks, I say, I would say. Um, so it starts at Edgewood and then it's Chestnut, Magnolia, Schoolhouse Road, uh, Harrison, and then it's bounded by Pinehurst. And so it's a, a little box, I'd say. And so it's very, very small. And we lost two grocery stores in the course of a year. They just decided to leave. We had to save a lot and we had pig, Piggly Wiggly. So we had before uh, riches in grocery store, you know, two different grocery stores you could go to that were so close. And then within a year, they both disappeared. So we're without a grocery store. We're in a food apartheid area. People don't have access to uh, fresh fruits and vegetables. And because we're a working class neighborhood, a lot of people do not have a car. And so people were walking. You know, these grocery stores were within walking distance, maybe a fourth of a mile, a half of a mile. You could walk there and come back, have your groceries. Um, and now they can't do that. So we decided to... Um, start the farmer's market to basically fill that food void. Um, and so it's been, you know, a labor of love. We've worked really hard. Um, we started off with one farmer, Jason Rowland of Organically Rowland. He's been a good friend of mine for over 12 years. And then we uh, expanded to Greg Brown of Greenleaf Farm. And then we have Amanda Jones of Doco Farm. And we recently added another farmer, Andrea Wood of Fire Barrel Farm. And so each of these farms are in different places. Jason is in Lexington. Greg is in Eastover. Amanda's in Blythewood. And then Andrea is in Gaston, South Carolina. So they're all within 20-minute radius. Okay. Excellent. Now, uh, did you just start, did you just pick up the phone and just start organizing this? Was this like a group effort amongst the neighborhood? Is there like a, a town hall meeting that you guys have? How did you actually establish the farmer's market? Well, I've been going to a lot of um, food and sustainability conferences, like the Black Farmers Conference. Um, it was in Atlanta a couple of years ago, and I saw Leah and other um, Black farmers who were in the movement and they were such they had such great words of encouragement and their consensus was if you don't see it in your neighborhood you have to save yourself you can't wait for someone else to save you and so before that moment I was always saying oh somebody else or some organization some nonprofit some charity um, you know some government organization is going to come in and do a farmer's market or put in a new store, or, you know, make the changes that are needed. And it just wasn't happening. And so I said, you know, I have to save myself. I have to save my community. And so I just had a conversation with Jason. He was delivering food to my home um, in the Pinehurst neighborhood. And the food is so delicious and it's so good. And his prices are very reasonable. And I just felt, you know, a little bit of personal shame like this is my personal friend and he's doing me a favor and no other people in this community don't have access to him and his wonderful produce and so I said let me uh, bridge that gap so I just had a conversation let's do a, a farmer's market and he agreed and he 
uh, I said, yeah, let's do it. And so we started out small. I made a beautiful lunch for people that was complimentary. People came, they had lunch. I made a beautiful hibiscus tea. We had lunch, we had tea, and then we purchased vegetables and chit-chatted and said, hey, how's it going? And, you know, we went from 1.30 to 3, and it was a great time to build community and uh, to get together and to support a local farmer. And we've just grown from there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that sounds like something very reasonable that anybody could really do in their neighborhood. Um, Didn't sound like there were a bunch of licenses that you needed to get, or there were a bunch of barriers of entries, just a matter of the desire and uh, reaching out. Yeah, absolutely. It's all about relationships. And what I can say about Columbia, South Carolina, and South Carolina in general, is that we are always been an agricultural state. We have cities, but we have a lot of rural areas that are, you know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes away. And we have a lot of individual small time farmers who do heritage crops, who maybe just specialize in raising ducks for meat or duck eggs or quail eggs or heritage pork. So there are so many people who have that independence of spirit and are growing on their land. Um, And so that has been a huge help. I mean, the Department of Agriculture, um, Mr. Weathers, I mean, he's done a really great job, I can say, uh, encouraging that entrepreneurial agricultural um, commitment, you know, in the South and in, in, in South Carolina. So I love that. I mean, this is not something necessarily that I could have done in other areas of the country, but it is something that I could do in um, Columbia, South Carolina. And I'm very, I'm very thankful for that. What's your, what are your thoughts on the state of Black people in America right now? You know, I think that these are some trying times, right? I think this is trying times for everybody and especially for people of color. But, um, you know, it, it all comes down to us being uh, leaders in our own community. I mean, I greatly admire the work of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in New York. I think definitely, I mean, not talking about her politics, but I do think that you can, everyone can agree she cares about her community. She wants the best for her community and she's advocating for her community. Um, And she's pushing the dialogue forward. And I think that all of us have to do that. We have to no matter where we are on the political spectrum, we should all be caring about our community, advocating for our community, and moving things in a positive direction uh, in our communities. Um, and so that's really what I've been focusing on um, in the, with the Pinehurst Farmers Market. I mean, I like the Jamal Bowman one. I was like, that's amazing! Also in New York. So, I mean, there's amazing and exciting things happening across our country, um, and people are doing the good work. I mean, Leah's doing the good work, and I think it's good to have, like you said, the conversation. We're having conversations about, you know, tough issues that people in our country have been suffering with, and I think it's so good that we're just having a conversation about it and saying, you know, I hear you, I see you. You know, I kind of knew, but now I know more right. and I want, I want to make a change. And I think that's all any of us can do. Um, we have to just, you know, move it forward and have the conversation and talk about, you know, these issues because we are a country 
of many different people and we have to all come together to make this work. Um, and I think people are willing to do that. I think they're starting to see that we cannot have all this division and be a successful country. We're going to have to because the division is just, it's tearing us down. If you had a paintbrush and you could redesign uh, Black communities, what would that look like to you? Hypothetical, however. That's such a great question. And that's really the work that we're trying to do with the Pinehurst Farmers Market. We uh, created the Pinehurst Community Action Nonprofit. And so with that arm, we are implementing some of our more grand visions for our community and our society. Um, and so for us, we're working on, um, you know, creating sustainable models for uh, feeding our community. And so we've been focusing on giving one-time boxes, which have been very successful, but then we're also trying to implement at a deeper level sustainability so people can feed themselves. They have the skills and the resources and the abilities um, and feel confident about it. And so we're applying for a lot of grants, we're looking for funding uh, to try to implement that vision. Um, and we're also working to uh, create partnerships with other organizations and other people in the movement who are about sustainability and food equity. And that's really our mission. We're really trying to elevate the conversation and elevate our community. I think sometimes um, some communities are left behind and maybe overlooked, and we're trying to solve that problem. And so that's the hard work that we're doing. It's really rewarding. Uh, we're gaining a lot of partners and a lot of input from others. So we're really uh, excited about the movement and moving forward. But it's definitely been a journey. And the Pinehurst Farmers Market was the impetus for all of this, where we saw the need of having the farmers market, and then we're growing that. And then we're seeing in our communities that with COVID, there's a lot of hunger, there's a lot of stress. Um, and trying to combat that in the next in the next phase. So it's it's been a really beautiful journey. All right, there we have it. That's another episode of the Spicy Pecan Podcast in the bag. Thank you guys so much for your support. Listen, I wanted to make sure I let you guys know, if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, make sure that you rate the show and leave a comment. Apparently that's like a big deal to them and they, um, you know, they rate the show higher and they suggest it more. So grab people's phones, subscribe to the show <laughs> on their phones if they have an iPhone and um, leave a comment. Guys, thank you so much for being, um, you know, a part of the show and I appreciate it. Make sure you're taking care of yourself. Be blessed. Thank you for listening to Spicy Pecan Podcast. This is a wonderful me media production.